Hi guys, before we start the show I just want to throw out a couple of ways that you can support us and help to keep the podcast sustainable. Now we're an Audible affiliate so if you fancy an audiobook subscription service hit them up through our link which is audibletrial.com forward slash darkhistories and you get a free month including one free book of your choice. Alternatively you can support us directly, we have a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash darkhistories and over there you can get bonus episodes, early access to the show access to our Discord and access to all my research notes. All those links will be in the show notes or over at the support page at darkhistories.com. And if times are tight and you're a bit hard up, and I think we can all appreciate that, it's no worries, you can support the show by just sharing it around on social media with your family, friends and all those other good people. All right, let's crack on with the show. Cheers. Lacking the infamy of the Black Dahlia or Jack the Ripper, the murder of Julia Wallace often flies under the radar. Set in Liverpool to the backdrop of a bitterly cold winter, it is a visceral murder case with very few thought-right answers. Contemporarily described as one of the most diabolically ingenious murder mysteries of modern times, tonight we turn our eye on the life of William Herbert Wallace and the sudden unresolved murder of his wife Julia. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories Season 2, Episode 16. I'm Ben, and tonight I've got a story that, after the last couple of weeks, is a little bit more down to earth, a little bit more grounded. It's absolutely a monster of a long one though, so... We're going to more or less jump straight into it, as we tend to always do. But before that, I just want to give a quick thanks to all the new Patreon members that signed up in the last couple of weeks. We've got Anna, Sarah Phillips, Killer Pancake, Brianne, Deborah and Ralph. Thank you very much to you guys. I'm, you know, I make the show by myself. So having you guys to kind of help support is really, really takes a lot of weight off my shoulders. So thank you very much. And I really do appreciate that. And also thanks to everyone who came along to our first live stream. Apologies for the technical teething difficulties, but they're sorted out now and we should be better for the next one. But we'll get more to that later. Let's get on with the story. This is The Murder of Julia Wallace. During the latter half of the 18th and throughout most of the 19th centuries, Liverpool was in a constant tug of war with several cities, including the likes of Glasgow, Birmingham and Manchester, to be crowned the second city of the British Empire, generating huge wealth and pushing social and economic boundaries. Throughout the Victorian era, it maintained a staggering level of activity, with over 40% of the world's trade passing through the dockyards. It was home to the Liverpool and Manchester Railway, the first railroad system to discard the use of animals in favour of steam power exclusively, as well as a host of other innovations, such as signalling and fully scheduled timetables. The offices of the White Star Line sat by the docks, famous for its ownership of the Titanic, which, whilst built in Ireland, was registered at one of the many docks on the River Mersey that thrived with ships. Through Irish immigration and border expansion, In less than a hundred years, the city more than trebled in size. Despite these heights, Liverpool quickly began floundering as the 20th century broke. The Atlantic slave trade, which had funded much of the city's earlier successes, was firmly abolished a hundred years prior, 
and exports of goods had stagnated and eventually started to shrink. By 1931, the population of Liverpool sat at a number around 850,000 strong. The bars were filled with the jazz of Duke Ellington, the cinemas lit up with scratchy black and white of Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff. The streets were lined with new housing, emerging from the rehousing projects that had sprung up to negate the rising unemployment as the grip of the Great Depression reached out across oceans, uprooting entire industries and wrecking trade markets overnight. The winter of 1931 was a cold and bitter one. Snow and ice had laid on the ground for much of it, and storms blew through regularly. For most, life was permeated by the simple pleasures of radio plays and walks in the local parks. And so it was for William Herbert Wallace and his wife Julia, residents of Wolverton Street, Liverpool, who, until this point, none had heard of. Within a year, this would all change, as William Herbert Wallace was about to become a household name throughout Liverpool and the nation. William Herbert Wallace was born in Milham, Cumberland, in the northwest of England on the 29th of August, 1878. He was the first of three children to his parents, Marjorie Hall and Benjamin Wallace, a printer and stationer by trade and part-time insurance agent for the Prudential. At a young age, he showed enthusiasm for the outdoors, sports and the arts, and was known to enjoy nature, cricket, football and Greek and Roman philosophy. His father was an amateur geologist and mother a pianist, both having a solid influence on William as he grew older when he developed a keen interest in chemistry and learned to play the violin. As a youth, he helped his father in the print workshop and in 1892 at the age of 14 he left school to start work as a draper's assistant, studying a five-year apprenticeship under master draper Thomas H. Tennant in Barrow. Upon completion of his apprenticeship, he worked in several positions relating to drapery but fancied himself more worldly. Wanderlust, which had obsessed me in earlier years, grew to fever heat, and at the age of 23, I sailed for India. William arrived in India in 1902, and he took up a salesman's position in the Calcutta branch of Whiteway Ladlaw & Co. However, he'd suffered from kidney trouble, and after just a few years, in 1905, he moved to Shanghai, where his brother worked as a printer for the British government with his wife. This move was again short-lived, and after several hospital stays due to recurrent problems with his kidneys, he returned to England by doctor's advice on 19th of March 1907. Within a month of his return, he was admitted to hospital for surgery to remove his left kidney. It took him 18 months to recover and return to work at a Manchester branch of Whiteway Ladlaw & Co. However, he found the work tiresome and droll, and so instead, he left the company to pursue his interest in politics. He lived with his family in Harrogate and began speaking for the local Liberal Party. In 1910, he took the position of Liberal Registration Agent in the Ripon Division of Yorkshire. It was at this time that he met Julia Dennis, who captivated him immediately. In his diary, he wrote of his feelings for her. Dark-haired, dark-eyed, full of energy and vivaciousness. She filled in every corner of the picture I had dreamed of, that one woman of all the world most men enshrine in their hearts. She lived just two streets down from William, and the pair began spending a great deal of their free time together. Julia Dennis has a somewhat more mysterious early life, and certain dates and details were obfuscated, moving many of the facts into a grey area. What is known is that she was born on the 28th of April, 1861, in Bromcliffe Farm, North Yorkshire. She was the second of seven children born to her parents, William Dennis and Anne Smith, 
On the eve of her 10th birthday, Julia's mother Anne died giving birth to her 7th child, which hit her father very hard. His health suffered and eventually this forced him to give up farming, instead taking on a role as innkeeper. It was a briefly held position though, and in 1785 he too passed away, succumbing to liver disease. Julia embarked on a career of teaching and became a governess to several families, an occupation which could offer her stability and a roof above her head. It's during this time when facts surrounding Julia turned a little south. At the age of 40, she cut 10 years from her age on the official census, giving herself as 30, a fabrication that was possibly invented to aid in her employment, as she apparently took this new age into her relationship with William Herbert Wallace. After the pair met, they began dating and quickly married in 1914. On their marriage certificate, she gave herself the age of 37, 16 years younger than her actual age of 53, and she also fabricated her parents' occupations, promoting her father as a veterinary surgeon, and her mother's name gained an accent Igu and a French origin. Her birthplace had also shifted to Leafy and well-off Sussex. It's been theorised that these fabrications were made by Julia originally to aid in her securing employment as a governess, being that most women in the role were young, single and from middle-class, well-bred backgrounds, which her own true background fell quite a way short. How much of the deception was known by William Herbert Wallace, now her husband, is unknown. None of her siblings attended the wedding. Had he married Julia, knowing her name is the only truth? Regardless, the pair were now happily married, and William and his father moved in with Julia, living in her flat in Harrogate. At the outbreak of war in 1914, all party politics was suspended, and William's position in the Liberal Party was lost. Instead, he answered the call to fight for king and country, like most men of the time. He answered the call six times, in fact, each time unsuccessful, as his medical issues surrounding his earlier kidney surgery stopped him from enlisting. Instead, with the aid of his father, he took a position as an insurance salesman with the Prudential, earning £270 a year, plus 30% commission. It was a good wage at the time. The new job was based in Liverpool, and so William and Julia up sticks and rehomed themselves in central Liverpool in March of 1915, living in the district of Clubmore, nearby to William's agency. One year later, in 1915, they moved to a three-bedroom terraced house in Wolverton Street, Anfield, built only three years prior, and settled down to a comfortable life. It was an unremarkable lower-middle-class area of Liverpool. The houses were not at all showy, but they were a step up from some of the more destitute housing in the lower-class areas. They lived reasonably well, able to afford a cleaning lady who visited once per week, and by all accounts appeared to have had a happy marriage. William described these earlier days of their marriage as filled with complete enjoyment, with all the happiness of quietude and mutual interest and affection. They slept in the master bedroom, whilst William turned one of the spare rooms into a chemistry lab, and Julia the other into a storeroom for her various accessories, hats and clothing items. William studied chemistry at the Liverpool Technical College, and two years later he began working there as a part-time lecturer in chemistry, a position which he held for five years. William and Julia's evenings were filled with listening to radio plays together. William, who had recently taken up playing the violin, accompanied Julia while she played piano, and the couple often took walks together in the local parks. 
William also founded the Central Chess Club with his friend James Caird, and twice a week the club met in Cottle City Caff, in the basement of 24 North John Street, a venue which played higher to many activities. Whilst not the greatest player in the club, William played only on the second string team and attended the club semi-regularly, attending on most Mondays. However, he tended to skip the latter Thursday meetup unless he was scheduled for a tournament match. Towards the end of the 1920s, William's health once again caught up with him and he suffered frequent bouts of kidney ailments, headaches and depression, often leaving him bedbound. Further to this, Julia too seemed to suffer from equal bouts of poor health, often gastric or bronchial in nature, and the pair seemingly lived for several years, alternating periods of health and sickness. During a spat of bronchitis, William found himself bedridden, and as such, he handed over his insurance rounds to colleague Richard Parry, who covered for him and visited William at home to hand over cash collections and brief William on the work undertaken. And so life continued for the Wallaces, alternating bouts of illnesses, but otherwise living a quiet life. When asked about the couple, opinions were mixed. One nurse, Mrs Florence Wilson, who had looked after William in the early 20s, remarked on them as a very peculiar couple. Their attitude towards one another appeared to be strange and the feeling of sympathy and confidence which one usually found existing between man and wife appeared to be entirely absent. She described Wallace himself as a man who appeared to have suffered a keen disappointment in life and she described Julia as peculiar in her manner and dirty. During her husband's illness she slept on the sofa in the kitchen although the front bedroom was vacant. Relations between them were not those of a normal couple and they were certainly not the happy and devoted couple as described by other people. Most of this was an observation and opinion shared by the family doctor who also remarked on his thoughts that the couple appeared to perhaps not be as happy as they liked to appear to others. William Herbert Wallace himself makes little mention of fighting or malice in his diary entries. In fact, quite the opposite. He wrote instead of his concern for Julia when she returned home late one night, leaving him with a great anxiety that she may have befallen a road accident. This even led him to check into the local police station to see if any reports of accidents had come in that evening. When she returned safely, delayed due to an accident on the tracks of the train she was riding, he wrote, It was a relief to know she was safe and sound. And there are many other entries pertaining to their marriage. On May the 15th, 1929, he wrote, Julia reminds me today, it was 15 years ago yesterday since we were married. Well, I don't think either of us regrets the step. We seem to have pulled well together, and I think we both get as much pleasure and contentment out of life as most people. Whilst it seems he forgot their wedding anniversary, his sentiment seems fairly clear. Whether or not they lived in perfect happiness and harmony, the couple's relationship overwhelmingly seems to have been one of placid companionship, filled with music and light radio entertainment, continually disrupted by illness, but, for the most part, quietly content. That was until January of 1931, when the story of William and Julia Wallace takes a nosedive into the world of murder, suspicion and mystery. Monday the 19th of January 1931 was another damp, windy day, following a week of storms that had been hanging over Liverpool. William left for work around 10am, catching the tram to his locale. By 2.30pm he was back home, having a schedule which allowed him every other Monday afternoon off. He had a chess meet-up that night, and after eating together with Julia, 
he set out between 7.15 and 7.20pm, leaving via the back door and walked to the tram station to catch the number 14 tram that would take him there. At 7.20pm, Louisa Alfreds, a switchboard operator at the Anfield Telephone Exchange, connected to a phone box, receiving a call from a man asking to be connected to Cottle City Caff, the home of the chess club. After failing at the first try to connect the two, the same man called back two minutes later. This time he spoke with another operator, Lillian Martha Kelly. After confirming their supervisor, Annie Roberts, concerning the initial connection difficulties, the call went through successfully and Annie logged the interaction on account of the earlier troubles. This log included the time, the phone box number, Anfield 1627, and the receiving number, Bank 3581. Gladys Harley, waitress at the cafe, picked up the phone receiver in the venue's small phone booth. A man's voice inquired after William Herbert Wallace, asking if he was at the cafe. Gladys handed the call over to the chess club captain, Samuel Beatty, who explained to the caller that though he had not seen Wallace yet that evening, and he couldn't say for sure if he would show up or not, he assured the caller that if he did, he would be due to arrive shortly and it may be better to call back later. The caller pressed that he was unable to call again, and instead asked for Wallace's address, though Beatty himself did not know it. Instead, the caller suggested that he could leave a message with Beatty to pass on. He told Beatty that his daughter had just turned 21, and that he would like to speak to Wallace concerning his business of insurance, insisting that it was Wallace specifically he wanted to deal with. He then left his name, R.M. Quattro, an address of 25 Menlove Gardens East, Mossley Hill, and asked that Wallace visit him at home the following evening at 7.30pm. Beatty wrote this information down to pass on to Wallace, and the caller hung up after confirming that he had taken the correct information. At 7.45pm, Wallace entered the cafe greeted by his friend James Caird, and sat down to play chess with another member. Caird didn't have a match that evening and he walked casually through the cafe. He was taken aside by Beatty, who asked Caird for Wallace's address, and he confirmed to Beatty, asking him why he didn't just ask Wallace himself who had by now arrived. Beatty then approached William's table and passed on the message he had received from the earlier call. Wallace wrote the details of the message into his prudential notebook, initially taking down the address as Menlove Gardens West until Beatty corrected him, where he struck out the West and corrected the note in block capital letters to East. He was initially confused by the message. He had never heard of an RM Quattro, nor of a Menlove Gardens East, and after some brief discussion with other members, who too could offer no assistance on the address or the name, he popped his notebook into his side pocket and returned to his game, which he proceeded to then win. At 10pm, William Wallace left the chess club with James Caird and fellow member Mr Betton. The trio caught a tram together and headed home. Caird lived in Letchworth Street, just a few streets down from Wolverton Street, so Wallace and Caird walked along discussing the message. Coultray was a fairly unusual name and neither men had heard of it before. The two made their farewells at Caird's doorstep and after a couple of minutes further walking, Wallace too reached home. Julie was still awake and the couple ate a late supper together and retired to bed. The morning of Tuesday January the 20th was a continuation of the week-long poor weather, grey, cold and wet. William Wallace donned his bowler hat and mac and ventured out into the rain to do his rounds at 10.30am, returning at 2pm for lunch with Julia. By now the weather was much improved 
and after eating he left once again at around 3.15pm to finish up his day's work. At 5.15pm William made his last call of the day at 19 Eastman Road before returning home at 6.05pm for a light supper together with Julia. He had been turning over the previous night's message from Quartro all day and the time had come to make a decision. Deciding it best that he at least check out the mysterious address, it was after all a decent work opportunity, he left home at 6.45pm to track down the elusive Menlove Gardens East. Wallace hopped on the number 26 tram that took him to Tunnel Road at 7.06pm and he crossed onto the number 5 tram, chatted with the conductor Thomas Charles Phillips along the journey and confirmed four times with Edward Angus, the ticket inspector, that he was on the right route. He eventually jumped off at Penny Lane to catch a second connection, boarding the number 5A tram at 7.15pm. The 5A took him to his final jumping off point on the corner of Menlove Avenue and Menlove Gardens West at 7.20pm. Wallace walked down through Menlove Gardens West and he turned into Menlove Gardens North. The maze of roads was frustrating and he stopped a passerby. The woman wasn't overly sure where East was, and suggested it could be a continuation of Menlove Gardens West. So, Wallace doubled back on himself and continued down Menlove Gardens West until it turned into Dudlow Lane. Here he met another passerby, Sydney Green, and asked directions again. Green explained to Wallace that there isn't an east as far as he was aware, only a north, south and west. Beginning to feel like he might be on a wild goose chase, Wallace instead decided to try 25 Menlove Gardens West, and he knocked on the door apprehensively. 25 West was the home of Mr Richard Mather and his wife Katie Ellen Mather who answered the door and confirmed with Wallace that she'd never heard of an RM Quattro and he certainly wasn't living at the residence. Wallace thanked her for her time and he stepped back out onto the pavement. He thought he'd try Menlove Avenue and Menlove Gardens South but found that all the numbers of the houses were evenly numbered. Here he met another passerby who couldn't help. They were also a stranger to the area. As he pondered what to do next, a thought occurred now to Wallace. He somewhat recognised this area. His superintendent at the Prudential lived nearby, and maybe he could help. He stopped by his house, knocking on the door, but unfortunately the home was empty for the evening and no answer came. Now at a complete loss, he wandered once again around the local streets until he eventually met PC James Edward Sargent. The policeman confirmed Sydney Green's earlier thoughts that there was in fact no Menlove Gardens East. Instead, he suggested to Wallace to try the local post office for a directory where he could at least check for the name Quadro. By now it had been almost half an hour of searching before Wallace had walked into the Alberton Road post office at 7.45pm. His poor luck continued and there was no directory. The manager of the post office pointed out the newsagents across the street to Wallace and suggested he might try there instead. And finally, after speaking to the manager and Mrs Lily Pinches, he was loaned the use of a local directory. Though Lily Pinches confirmed as she passed the book over that there was certainly no Menlove Gardens East. By ten past eight, Wallace conceded the loss and decided to return home, frustrated. He repeated the tram connections home and arrived in Wolverton Street at 8.45pm. Tired and cold, William Wallace slid his door key into the front door of his house, only to find the door would not budge and there was no reply to his rapping. With a sigh, he removed the key and tried the back door instead. There was a dim light shining from the scullery into the gloom of the kitchen, but little sign of any life. 
Again, after trying the door, he found that it too would not budge and he knocked hard on the wood. There was no reply. Skipping from the back to the front, and then after confirming the door would not open, back to the rear entrance again, he met his neighbours, John Sharp Johnston and his wife Florence Johnston, who joined him and suggested retrieving their spare key if he continued to have no luck. William mentioned that it was somewhat concerning as Julia would not have gone out as she was currently suffering from a bad cold and he asked if they'd heard anything unusual that night. The neighbours explained that they had not heard anything at all out of the ordinary just as the door finally came. William entered the dimly lit house, lighting a lamp with a match. Moments later he burst back through the same door, exclaiming to the Johnstons, Come and see, she's been killed. The Johnstons slowly followed Wallace through the house from the kitchen, following his lamplight into the lounge, and there, fully clothed and lying on the floor covered in a blood-stained mac, was the body of Julia Wallace. Julia's body was lying on the rug on the floor, feet towards the fireplace. Her head had been badly battered, and it appeared that she had been dead for a while. There was a large gash above her left ear, and her skull had been shattered. Mr Johnson went to fetch the police and doctor, he told his wife and William not to touch anything in the house. The pair removed themselves to the kitchen to await the arrival of the authorities. William noticed that a shelf in the kitchen where he had kept his potential collection box had had its door torn off at the hinges, and so he took down the metal cash tin and found that around £4 had been taken, a sum worth around £260 today once adjusted for inflation. Meanwhile, Mr Johnson had alerted his local GP, Dr Dunlop, and continued on to the police station where he told the PC on desk duty who informed and dispatched PC Fred Williams to the scene. PC Williams arrived at Wolverton Street at 9.10pm and took Julia's pulse, finding no signs of life. He and William then checked the upstairs bedrooms, during which William explained to the PC the brief details of his trip to find the non-existent Menlove Gardens East. The two rear rooms appeared undisturbed but the front bedroom, where Julia kept many of her personal items, was found a scene of some distress. Julia's hats were strewn across the room, bedclothes were pulled from the bed, and pillows and handbags were lying on the bed and floor, though it appeared as if nothing had been stolen. The two moved back down to the kitchen and sat down at the table. William noticed Julia's handbag and he checked the contents, noting again that nothing appeared to have been stolen, including cash. Just as a second police officer, Sergeant Breslin, arrived at Wolverton Street and a sudden flurry of activity swept through the house. Dr John Edward Whitley McFall, Professor of Forensic Medicine from the University of Liverpool, along with the Detective Superintendent Hubert Moore and the head of the Liverpool Special Branch, Sergeant Adolphus Fothergill, also showed up to inspect the scene. McFall inspected Julia's body and noted that with no defensive wounds, many of the blows to the head would have been administered while she was face down on the floor, concluding that it was a prolonged and frenzied attack. He gave a time of death for Julia to be around six hours previous, estimated from a state of rigor mortis as it had spread through the body. The night was a long one for William, as police came and went until the early hours of the next morning. William told and retold his movements for the night time and again, and was inspected for traces of blood, none of which were found. Eventually, Julia's body was removed from the house at 1.15am, leaving behind William's blood-stained mac, lying in a macabre pile amongst blood-matted hair in the centre of the lounge. 
It was 4am before William was driven to the house of his sister-in-law, where he had planned to stay during the police investigation of his home on Wolverton Street. There was little sleep to be had that night, both for William, who was in a state of some shock, and the police, whose work had only just begun. Over the subsequent days, Julia's autopsy revealed that she had died from one of 11 wounds on her head, administered by a blunt object that was assumed to have been a metal bar and quite possibly a fire poker, found to be missing from the Wallace's home. Despite extensive searches of the area and local drains and sewers, no murder weapon was ever found. The grisly murder was causing a considerable stir in the area, and theories and suspicions as to the identity of the killer quickly began circulating. Almost immediately, rumours began circulating concerning the murder of Julia Wallace, and suspicions that William was the killer followed promptly. Within a matter of hours, people were passing on slithers of information, some gleaned from facts and others manufactured as the story travelled through Anfield. Wallace was also suspect number one as far as the police were concerned, simply by association, as is common in preliminary stages of a murder investigation. The Wallaces were seemingly inoffensive with no enemies, and though £4 had been taken from William's lockbox, there were many valuables left behind, as well as cash in Julia's handbag in the kitchen. In fact, there was really little else for the police to go on at this early point in the investigation. The police immediately began taking testimonies from witnesses as they came forward, as well as attempting to corroborate Wallace's own story of his movements whilst hunting down the non-existent Menlove Gardens East, a story that he had recounted step by step in his first official statement. One key witness turned out to be Alan Close, a 16-year-old milk delivery boy who had delivered milk to the Wallaces and was the last to have seen Julia alive at 6.45pm. He was cajoled by his friends to tell this information to the police, which he did and had his story corroborated by the local paperboy who saw both Alan Close and Julia at the time. This information meant that if William Wallace was indeed the killer, he had just over 20 minutes to murder his wife, clean himself up and make the journey to the tram stop to catch a tram by 7.06pm. The journey on foot between Wolverton Street and the tram stop on the corner of West Derby Road was a distance of 605 yards, and it was a journey that was repeatedly reconstructed by police who found it to be a close call. At times they actually ran the journey just to extend the amount of time it would give the hypothetical Wallace to murder his wife, clean up and feign a robbery. It was a stretch, but with no other suspects, The suspicion continued to fall on Wallace, who the police theorised had made the call to the chess club the previous night himself to set up his own alibi. There was only one other suspect at the time, a man known both to Wallace and the police, Richard Parry. Richard Parry was born on the 12th of January 1909 in Liverpool, the first of six children to William John Parry, a treasurer to the Liverpool Corporation, and Lillian Jane Evans. The family was comfortable financially, and staunch Methodists. Richard's father was a fairly distinguished Liverpudlian, a veteran of the First World War. He went on to serve as treasurer or chairman on several boards and committees across the city. Richard, the eldest son, had a lot to live up to, or rebel against. Whilst at school, Richard Parry suffered his first brush with the law. Every morning as he walked to school, he pulled down a boundary wall surrounding the building sites of new houses being erected along his route. He did it so often that it had become part of his morning routine, and eventually this caught up with him as the builders stood watch to catch whoever was causing the damage. The damage he had caused was quite considerable, 
and he was eventually convicted at a juvenile court for damaging property. Whether or not this foreshadowed his future misdemeanours, or was just a youth causing mischief is something unknown, but it caused great stress to his well-to-do family. Whilst at school, Parry developed an interest in acting, and he joined the school's dramatic society, where he met his future girlfriend, Lily Lloyd. In 1923, he left school, and in 1926, he joined the Prudential as an apprentice insurance salesman, whilst continuing his interest in acting through joining the Mersey Amateur Dramatic Society, which met in the same building as Wallace's Chess Club every Thursday night. During bouts of William's illness, Richard Parry was asked to cover for William's work during the winter of 1928. William noted that the cash that Parry had collected from William's patch and had been bringing to his house had some discrepancies. When confronted about this, Parry smoothed the whole thing over by paying out of his own pocket to cover the losses. Parry became a suspect for the murder for having a known motive. He had been confronted by William for discrepancies in his takings and this may or may not have led to a mutual agreement arranged between Parry, his father and the Prudential on his departure from the company. Furthermore, he knew the interior of the house and he would have been a familiar face to Julia who may have let him into the house without any concern. Parry had frequented the same cafe as Wallace as a member of the Mersey Amateur Dramatics Club and he could easily have seen the timetable for members of the chess club which hung on a notice board by the door. There are also hints to the police that Parry may have had a somewhat more intimate relationship with Julia, though this was all speculation at the time. Wallace himself had given Parry's name to the police during his initial statement as a person Julia would have let into the house whilst he was not home. The police really had very little else to go on and so investigations into Parry's whereabouts were undertaken. As it happens, on the night of the phone call, Parry had been visiting his girlfriend Lily Lloyd, a fact backed up by her mother, Josephine Lloyd, who told the police that Parry had dropped by the house at about 7.15pm, the exact time the call was being made to the chess club by Coltro. The phone box itself was able to be tracked via the records taken by the operator's supervisor due to the initial failed connection, and it was found to be in Rochester Road, some 20 minutes drive away from Lily's house. This appeared to be a solid alibi for Parry, more damningly for Wallace, who was a mere 400 yards from his own house. As for the night of the murder itself, apparently, apparently he had an alibi covering himself for that too. He stated that he had dropped by to see a Mrs. Brine, where he had stayed until 8.30pm. Also present were her daughter and nephew. He then went out and bought some cigarettes and a paper from the post office, and then onto a store on West Derby Road to inquire about a battery for a radio. He dropped in on a friend, Mrs. Williamson, to chat for 10 minutes concerning her daughter's upcoming 21st birthday plans at around 8.30pm, and then on to collect Lily from the local cinema where she worked. Both Lily and her mother confirmed he then stayed from 9pm until 11pm that night, before leaving to return home. These were not the only witnesses for Parry's whereabouts that night, however, but for now, the police found the alibi to check out, and inquiry into Parry as a suspect died down. Instead, the police refocused their efforts onto Wallace, dispatching a plainclothed officer to tail him and notice every move. Still, the police were busy re-enacting Wallace's journey, figuring it to be an average of 18 minutes, and thus they concluded that Wallace would have had the time to do what he needed and still make the tram by 7.06pm. They didn't, however, account for any cleaning of bloodstains from skin or clothes, nor for Wallace's poor health, but regardless, Inspector Moore was quite happy with the results. Wallace was pulled in once again to give a fourth statement to police, 
and despite no glaring faults or changes to his original story, a warrant for his arrest was issued and at 7pm on the 2nd of February, he was apprehended by Superintendent Hubert Moore, Charles Thomas and Inspector Hubert Gold while staying with his sister-in-law for the willful murder of his wife, Julia Wallace. As he was read his arrest, he simply replied, What can I say in answer to a charge of which I am absolutely innocent? The next day at 10.30am, people poured into the Liverpool courtroom in order to catch a glimpse at the proceedings. Police had had to disperse a packed entrance hall of about 200 hopefuls who had arrived too late to secure a place in the courtroom itself. Whilst the prosecution outlined the case against Wallace, he stood in the dock, stoic and composed in a dark suit, his bowler hat perched on a seat next to him. As the prosecuting solicitor read the details, he made misstatement after misstatement, one after the other, totalling 18 errors by the time he had completed his speech. Some of the errors were simple, such as mistaking districts and addresses. Some statements were critical, such as On entering the back door, the accused asked his neighbours to wait in case there was anything wrong. This was in fact the other way round. It was the Johnstons themselves that suggested that they wait. Details like this were left unchallenged, and when asked if he had anything to say, Wallace merely stood and told the pack room, Nothing, sir, except that I am absolutely innocent of the charge. Wallace was later that day made to stand in several lineups for witnesses to positively identify him as the man that they had seen on the night of the 20th of January, making his journey to Menlove Gardens. He then confirmed his solicitor to be that of Hector Monroe, of Herbert J. Davis, Burton and Monroe, and a member of the chess club, although the two men were not known well to one another. Wallace was then led away to await trial in Walton Prison. Funds for the services of Monroe were supplied partially by Wallace and his younger brother, with substantial donations from both local prudential officers and union members nationwide. They even held a mock trial of sorts, and once they had heard Monroe on the facts of the case, the union voted to cover the expenses for Wallace's defence, an act which made history as the first time a trade union would guarantee defence costs of a member. As alluded to earlier, there was another witness who had seen Parry on the night of the 20th, a man who now, after Wallace's arrest, chose to speak up about a matter that had been lying heavily on his mind, a man named John Parks. Parks worked as a mechanic at a local taxi rank and garage, a place that acted as something of a hub for overnight traffic in the area. Often the workers there would invite customers in to warm themselves with a mug of tea and a bit of gossip and conversation. On the night of the murder, Parks had heard all about the commotion at the Wallace household, and the rumours that had already began flying through the place that Wallace was the man responsible for the crime. Later that evening, however, Richard Parry paid Parks a visit. He appeared agitated, and he'd asked Parks to hose his car down inside and out. Parks turned the high-powered hose to the job, despite thinking to himself that the car seemed fairly clean. When he inspected the interior of the car to ensure that he wouldn't soak anything important, he found a leather glove covered in blood in the passenger compartment. Parry snatched it from him promptly, jokingly saying, If the police found that, they'd hang me. Parry paid Parks for the job, and he took off into the night, leaving Parks with the decision to make. After confiding with his boss before signing out for the night, the pair concluded to have nothing to do with the whole situation, unless Wallace was arrested for the killing of Julia. Now that had come to pass, Parks decided, finally, to speak up. 
He asked his boss to contact the police about the incident and Superintendent Moore showed up to take the statement and hear Parks' story. Once he had concluded telling the inspector all the details of his finding of the glove, Moore simply dismissed the entire event outright and disregarded the entire affair. The committal proceedings began on Thursday, February the 19th and once again, the prosecuting solicitor repeated the same misstatements in his opening speech to the court that he had made in his previous appearance this time including several more. This time, however, it proved to be too much, and Schofield Allen, who was appearing on behalf of Munro to defend Wallace, stood to his feet and told the court, Time after time Mr Bishop is suggesting things. It is his duty to present this case fairly, without bias and on the facts. Wallace is on trial for his life, and my friend seems to forget that. Mr Bishop's duty is to present the case for the Crown. Cold, hard, logical facts are needed and not things to prejudice Wallace. I protest strongly about this, and this is not the first time it's been done. The remainder of the day was dedicated to hearing testimony from various witnesses on the character of Wallace, his relationship with Julia, as well as some details pertaining to the phone call made to the cafe on the night of the 19th of January, including the fact that the phone box was situated 400 yards from Wallace's house in Wolverton Street. The committal proceedings lasted a further six days, passing by with as much public interest as the first. Each morning, queues formed outside the courthouse, with many having to be turned away once capacity had been reached. Witness testimony was heard pertaining to all facets of Wallace's movements on both the night of and the night before the murder, as well as evidence submitted that no force of entry had been noted on Wallace's property, either to the house or the rear garden, along with several statements made concerning Wallace's diaries that he had meticulously kept for the years leading up to the present, and that included many references to his life with Julia being one of contentment. The hearing concluded with a statement from Wallace. I plead not guilty to the charge made against me, and I am advised to reserve my defence. I would like to say that my wife and I lived together on the very happiest of terms during the period of some 18 years of our married life. The suggestion that I murdered my wife is monstrous, that I should attack and kill her is, to all who knew us, unthinkable and unbelievable. All the more so when it must be realised that I could not gain one possible advantage by committing such a deed, nor do the police suggest I gained any advantage. On the contrary, in actual fact, I have lost a devoted and loving comrade. My home life is completely broken up, and everything that I hold dear has been ruthlessly uprooted and torn from me. I am now left to face the torture of this nerve-wracking ordeal. I protest once more that I am entirely innocent of this terrible crime." He then sat down silently and awaited the date of the trial. The trial proper began at 10am on Wednesday the 22nd of April at St George's Hall. Just like the pre-trial seatings, the affair was the subject of huge public interest and the courtroom, with room for 300 people, was easily filled with many hundreds more turned away outside. William Wallace faced the courtroom on that morning and firmly stated his plea, not guilty. The prosecution gave a two-hour-long overview of the case and the witnesses were called to give evidence. Amongst the topics on that first day, most concentrated on Wallace's movements on the 19th of January, the phone call made to the city calf and the voice on the other end of the phone. PC James Rothwell gave evidence of seeing Wallace at 3.30pm on the 20th whilst he was working. The policeman was well acquainted with Wallace, being both a local to the area and one of his customers. PC Rothwell stated that Wallace was looking 
haggard and drawn, and he was very distressed, unusually distressed. He was dabbing his eye with his coat sleeve, and he appeared as if he had been crying. Though through further questioning, he did admit that he was unsure if he was actually crying, or if perhaps the cold wind could simply have been stinging his eyes. When Samuel Beattie was cross-examined concerning the phone call, he was asked if he knew Mr Wallace's voice well, and if he thought that the voice on the other end of the phone resembled Mr Wallace's voice. His reply was not one of ambiguity. It would be a great stretch of the imagination for me to say that it was anything like that. The remainder of the day continued by questioning witnesses who spoke to Wallace on the night of the 19th of January whilst he made his way to and hunted for Menlove Gardens East. The second day opened with the Johnstons, Wallace's neighbours, present at the time he discovered Julia's body, who gave their account of the evening. Next up were various police officers who responded to the immediate discovery of the murder, including Superintendent Moore, who confirmed with the prosecution that all windows were locked and that there was no evidence of forceful entry to the house. Afterwards, Wallace's cleaning lady was called to the stand, who told the court of the missing poker from the fireplace and then a locksmith who confirmed that he had examined the locks of Wallace's house for the police the day following the murder, included that though they were both stiff, they were both in good working order. The third day saw queues forming outside the court at 5.30am. It was to be a big day for the trial. William himself was to take the stand for the first time, and the furore outside the court was palpable as thousands were turned away. Under cross-examination, the prosecution heavily insinuated that Wallace had concocted the entire set of events leading up to the murder of Julia, pointing out several key points. Namely, they pointed out that Quattro, if he truly was unknown to Wallace, would have had no possible means to know whether or not Wallace had received his message at the chess club. He pointed out the phone box being a more 400 yards from Wallace's house, and that if Qualtro was a fake in order to lure Wallace away from his home on the night of the 20th to find an address which never existed, it was a plan that relied on the chance successes of a precarious chain of improbable events. He also questioned Wallace as to his conversations with so many people whilst he searched for Menlove Gardens East, suggesting that many were unnecessary and full of details, such as giving the time and over-explaining his activities. They also pointed out that the sheer number of people asked was a result of the address intentionally being wrong. Again, the prosecution were heavily insinuating that the address given to Wallace was incorrect precisely to provide him with an array of witnesses to his alibi. If you had been given the right address, of course, you need not make a number of inquiries. One would have been sufficient. You follow what I mean? The wrong address is essential in the creation of evidence for the alibi. Do you follow that? If you are told of an address which does not exist, you can ask seven or eight, every one of whom would be a witness where you were. The prosecution then followed with making points of both the poor job of a thief, if the crime was indeed a burglary gone awry, on account of the many valuables left untouched, and they probed Wallace on the locks to his doors and why he had such trouble entering the house, suggesting that perhaps he was merely waiting for his neighbours to arrive to provide further witnesses. After more than three hours on the stand, Wallace finally stepped down and made way for Professor James Edward Dibble, pathologist at Liverpool University, who called into question the veracity of the time of death due to the inaccurate method of measuring the state of rigor mortis as the sole predictor. Saturday the 25th of April saw the final day of the trial of William Wallace. 
with capital punishment yet to be outlawed in England. If he was found guilty, there was a very real chance he would be sentenced to hang. The closing speech for the defence began by drawing heavy doubts as to the likelihood that Wallace made the original phone call to the chess club and in highlighting the accuracy of the time of death and concluded as such. Members of the jury, I have finished. The onus in this matter, the burden of proof, is wholly upon the Crown. You have got a crime here without a motive. You have got a man here against whose character there is not a word to be said. You have got a man here whose affection for his wife cannot be doubted. You are trying a man for the murder of a woman who was his only companion for no benefit. The Romans had a maxim which is as true today as it was then. No one ever suddenly become the basest of men. How can you conceive that such a man with these antecedents doing such a thing as this? Finally, if I may say so, it is not enough that you should think it possible that he did this. Not merely enough, but it is not nearly enough. On looking at the two stories, you may say, well, the story of the defence does not sound very likely, but the story of the prosecution does not sound very likely either. And if that be the state of your minds, then he is entitled to be acquitted. I suggest that this should be the state of your minds. The story for the defence is not very likely, but at least it is consistent with all the facts. The story of the prosecution sounds impossible. It was then the turn for the prosecution to give its closing speech. The speech addressed the two vital points focused on by the defence, that of the phone call and that of the time of death. Let us take the facts on the first. The prisoner admits that on Monday night, about 7.15, he left his house. About 7.15 obviously may mean two or three minutes one way or the other. He gave that statement quite early on, I think the night of the murder, and that statement is not and cannot be varied. The telephone box is 400 yards from his house. Walking five miles an hour, one would do that in rather under three minutes. Walking four miles an hour, in rather over. He is a tall man, and one could probably fairly give him a good four miles an hour walking at night. At 7.15, from the telephone box, about three minutes from his house, someone tries to get through to the city calf. My learned friend said, how did the recorder get the fact that nobody knew or could know who was going to be there? He must have got it from the police. I did not. I got it from his client, in the deposition, as I put it to him. Inspector Gold, giving his evidence before the magistrates, and again here, said, I asked him if he knew anyone who knew he was going to the club and had he told anyone he was going. To that, Wallace said, no, I had not told anyone I was going, and I cannot think of anyone who knew I was going. And upon that, I based a statement that nobody would know that he was going or could know. It is suggested somebody might have looked at the match list up in the city cafe, and I think you know from Mr Beatty that that was only provincial, as people might never turn up for their matches, and have acted upon that. Now let me come back. Assuming he left the house on his three minutes journey at 7.15, he could easily have been in that telephone box at 7.18. But by a singular coincidence, the man who wanted him, Quattro, was in that telephone box at the identical time at which Mr Wallace might have been there. And, by another singular coincidence, at that moment was trying to ring up Mr Wallace. That is how it starts. The man in the box is ringing up at a time when, on Mr Wallace's own times, he might perfectly well have been there. The defence went on to explain the ease of disguising one's voice over a telephone call, 
and once again reiterating that if the man who had made the call was not Wallace, it would be absurd to simply cross one's fingers and hope he received the message, not knowing if Wallace would turn up at the chess club or not, and the numerous other junctions that this plan crossed but could have easily failed were it not for dumb luck. The speech pointed to Wallace's behaviour throughout the evening of the 20th of January up to and after his discovery of Julia's body, and concluded, Now, members of the jury, the points I want to draw your attention to in conclusion are these. First of all, the overwhelming probability that the man who left his house at 7.15 on the evening of the 19th was the man who was in the telephone box about 7.15. He said three minutes later than that, 7.18, only three minutes walk from his house, there is a telephone box which this call goes through. I suggest to you that on that part of the case, a great deal points, if not everything, to the man there being the prisoner. As regards the time of death, the other point that my learned friend said was so vital, I submit that that also is easily established. The man who had made his plans, whether the boy was seen at 6.30 or 6.35 talking to this woman, had between that time and 6.49, practically 20 minutes, and there is no reason to suppose that a man who had done a thing like that would go very slowly. If he did it, he was trying to create an alibi, and he would. I am bound to suggest to you, on behalf of the Crown, that the evidence connecting this man with that message is strong evidence that the evidence that this woman was alive around about 6.30 is strong evidence. The evidence of what the man did when he came back to the house is strong evidence and that he was not acting then as an innocent man. The judge gave his final speech to the packed restless courtroom, emphasising the lack of motive and dismissed the jury to make their deliberations. It took the jury a single hour to consider the evidence for the case for and against Wallace and when they returned, the judge stood to give the verdict. The courtroom, so full of chatter and restless onlookers throughout, fell deathly silent to hear the outcome. The foreman of the jury gave the decision. Do you find the prisoner guilty or not guilty of murder? Guilty, came the reply. When asked if he had anything to say as to why he should not be sentenced to death, Wallace stood calmly, hands behind his back, and stated simply, I am not guilty. I cannot say anything else. Wallace disappeared from view, slowly taking the steps out of the courtroom as the trial concluded. In a twist of events, however, Wallace was not done yet. As Wallace was removed from court and taken back to Walton Prison, the gears were already turning for the defence to launch an appeal against the guilty verdict, and it was officially lodged on Monday the 27th of April, stating that the weight of evidence was against the verdict as consistent with innocence as it was with guilt. The appeal took place on the 18th and 19th of May at the Court of Criminal Appeal in the Strand, London. Both the defence and prosecution laid out long, exhaustive speeches and once they were completed, the presiding judges allowed the appeal and removed themselves to discuss their verdict. At 4.15pm, in a decision of some uniqueness, the guilty verdict against Wallace was overthrown. Not for admission of new evidence, or any mistrial by a preceding judge, but for error in judgement by a standing jury. The evidence, it was decided, was not enough to offer a guilty verdict. The conclusion that we have arrived is that the case against the appealant, which we have carefully and anxiously considered and discussed, was not proved with that certainty which is necessary in order to justify a verdict of guilty. 
William Herbert Wallace left the appeals court and returned to Liverpool a free man. In the months following the appeal, Wallace attempted to return to work at the Prudential, but found quickly that not everyone in Liverpool supported his freedom. He was routinely harassed, making his work and home life equally difficult. He moved house to a small bungalow on the Wirral, just outside of central Liverpool. He commuted from there to an office position the Prudential had moved him to to allow him to work away from the public eye. In the winter of 1932, William's kidney problems began flaring up again and in February 1933 he was hospitalised, requiring surgery. The surgery failed and on the 26th of February 1933, William Herbert Wallace passed away. On the 18th of March, just under two years from his successful appeal, he was buried in the Anfield Cemetery in the same grave as Julia. The case of Julia Wallace is one that has fascinated for decades, and with its meticulous documentation, one that has been worked over time and time again. New information was still being unveiled 50 years on from the original date of the murder, and there has been numerous books based either directly on or heavily influenced by the case, as well as a feature-length film. Nowadays, there are two main schools of thought as to what happened on the nights of the 19th and 20th of January 1931. In the first, we have those that believe Wallace to be the killer, that the crime was coldly worked out, calculated in minute detail, and carried out very nearly to perfection. Those that believe this theory build a case against Wallace that he left home to go to the chess club on the 19th, he made the call on the way, ensuring to fudge the original call to the operator, ensuring that a log would be made. He then proceeded to kill his wife on the 20th while dressed in his Macintosh, stripped off the coat, placing it on her body, and made quick work of the journey to the tram station for 7.06 to make the journey to Menlove Avenue. Naturally, he knew the address was false and so he made pains to speak to as many people as possible, creating himself an alibi with a great many witnesses. Upon his return, he made an intentional fuss at his front and back door to draw attention to his neighbours, once again gaining more witnesses for his return home and discovery of the body. In this theory, Wallace had to have thought through hundreds of minute details, such as his taking the address down wrongly in the city calf when he received the message, right down to the conversations he had with each witness, ensuring that just enough information was given or received to allow both successors' evidence and failure on the part of finding the falsehood of the address at too an early point in the plan. If this is the case, one must ask the question, why would he have done such a thing in the first place? There are further suggestions that his married life may not have been all that Wallace made it out to be, but why would one lie in their own private diaries? There are suggestions that Julia was having an affair, but that all lies in speculation. The Macintosh in the theory does explain how he remained clean during the murder to an extent, However, would it have been possible to contain the blood merely to the Mac and not anywhere else on his body when blood spatter reached seven feet up the walls of the lounge? Some say his behaviour after the murder was too cold, too uncaring for a loving husband grieving for his wife, whilst others point to his stoic personality even before the murder, as well as the pressures to remain strong in a crisis that many judged as amiable for the time. The second theory is that it was another who phoned the calf to leave Wallace the message, pretending to be Quattro to lure him from his home, allowing the murder to be carried out. As there was no forceful entry to the house, it is suggested that the door was knocked, 
and whoever it was was familiar to Julia and William and voluntarily asked inside the house. The killer then proceeded to murder Julia and flee before Wallace returned home. The Macintosh in this theory was commented on by Wallace himself, who suggested that perhaps Julia tossed it over her own shoulders when she went to open the front door, outside being as cold as it was. In this case, the murderer is most often theorised to have been Richard Parry. Parry had something of a motive and history of minor criminal offences, including theft. In later life, he continued this trend. Parry also spent time in the city calf and could easily have seen the chess club's timetable pinned to the notice board by the door that detailed Wallace's participation at the club on the 19th. Many years later, in 1981, his then-girlfriend, Lily Lloyd, suggested whilst being interviewed for a radio programme that she covered for Parry to help create him an alibi. She claimed she told the police she had met Parry at 9pm on the night of the 20th, but in fact it had been much later. How much later, she was unsure of and refused to give further details. The details of Parry's whereabouts on the night of the call are also at odds with Lily Lloyd's statement and allow for Parry to have had ample opportunity to have made the call to the calf. And what of the glove found in the car covered in blood? These are all very damning on the part of Parry, but are no less circumstantial than the evidence against Wallace. And there are many other theories beyond. Some believe it could have been the neighbours, some a local burglar who had been carrying out a spat of break-ins at the time, and others suggest hybrid theories involving Wallace, Parry and a third man, Joseph Marsden. Almost all evidence for the case against Wallace is as circumstantial as the evidence against Parry or anyone else. Mysteries remain, and with every answer there are new questions. One example being that if it wasn't Wallace in the phone box, why had he not called into the Wallace's house on the night of the 19th? After all, the box was a mere 400 yards away. Edgar Lusgarten, one-time president of the Oxford Union, crime novelist and journalist, wrote of the case, As a mental exercise, as a challenge to one's powers of deduction and analysis, the Wallace murder case is in a class by itself. It has all the maddening, frustrating fascination of a chess problem that ends in perpetual check. Any set of circumstances that is extracted from it will readily support two incompatible hypotheses. They will be equally consistent with innocence and guilt. It is pre-eminently the case where everything is cancelled out by something else. The case of the murder of Julia Wallace endures, both intriguing and frustrating in equal parts. With police files now missing, and with many of the direct contacts of the case now deceased, it will, more than likely, maintain its position in perpetual check. See, I wasn't kidding when I said it was a big one, right? So, no doubt you'll need a break. So, here's a couple of adverts, so you can go and sit the kettle on or something. Relax after that monster of a story. As mentioned at the start of the show, Dark Histories is an official affiliate with Audible.com. As an affiliate, Audible has given us the chance to offer our listeners a 30-day free trial, and that includes an audiobook of your choice. I've actually been a member of Audible myself, off and on for over a year or so now, so I'm pretty happy to advertise the service. For those that don't know it, Audible is an audiobook subscription service that gives you one credit for every month you're a member. You then go ahead and you spend your credit on any book that you like, and if you decide to quit your membership or put it on hold, you keep all of your old audiobooks. With our link, audibletrial.com forward slash darkhistories, 
you can sign up for a free month and that includes a free audiobook of your choice at the same time. If you don't think it's for you at the end of the month, you can cancel your subscription before the 30 days are up and you've lost nothing, you've gained an audiobook and you've helped to support the show. So as I mentioned, I'm a member of Audible myself and this month I've been listening to No Such Thing as Society, A History of Britain in the 1980s, which is pretty awesome. I was born in 81, so it's pretty interesting for me to go back and read sort of in-depth social and cultural history of the time that I grew up in. Um, I usually end up with more books than I do time, so in my backlog I've also got the history of the Templars, which is something I've always heard about but never read about, so again I'm pretty interested to listen to that one. There's more than just history on Audible though, and there's over 40 hours of the complete Sherlock Holmes read by Stephen Fry, and that's all just one book, and I'd give that as an example of something which I'd definitely recommend. They got desktop, Android and iOS apps, and they all sync up. And they also give you hassle-free returns if you find you've spent your credit on a duffer, which is something that I did when I found that I'd spent my credit on a German version of The Lost World. So they took it straight back, and I got my credit back and everything was good. So if you think that sounds like it might tickle your fancy, head over to audibletrial.com forward slash darkhistories and sign up for your 30-day free trial. Ads are a pain in the butt, right? So do you want to know a good way to avoid listening to them? If you sign up to Dark History's Patreon, you get ad-free versions of the show with early access to episodes, access to bonus content, stickers, exclusive discounts on the t-shirt store, and all that other good stuff. You get content from me, you get videos, I give like little running commentary and behind the scenes of how I make the show. And by being a member, you're directly supporting the show. You can sign up for as little as $1 per month and you can help make Dark Histories the best it can be. For more information, check out our website at darkhistories.com or pop over to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash darkhistories. Right, enough of all that. Thanks for listening and let's get back to the episode. Welcome back. Thanks for listening. As I said, this was a huge one and I've got probably a lot to say about it, but we're obviously running really long already. so. I'm going to keep it brief and probably save most of what I've got to say for it for the next live stream. Uh, If you're interested in the story, what I will say is that there was just so much detail for this. There was huge amounts and I absolutely cut things down so that it was just enough for people to get the idea. But there is so many little details that sort of go along with this. If you're interested in that, there is... A few resources. There's the entire court transcripts, which are online, and I'll put in the show notes. And obviously, there's some pretty good primary sources, so I recommend those. If you'd rather just read something with a narrative, there's a couple of books um, The Killing of Julia Wallace by Jonathan Goodman and The Murder of Julia Wallace by James Murphy. Both I found to be quite good. I'll stick them again. There'll be links to those in the show notes if you want to sort of pick them up. They're, they're not too expensive books. They, they were published a while back now, so you can get them usually secondhand. There's also a film called The Man from the Prue. It was sort of a made-for-TV film, I think, but it's, but it's you know, it's a bit dated now, but if you've got like an hour and a half to spare, stick it on, why not? You can. It's actually the full things on YouTube. Again, I'll stick it in the show notes. And say there is just so much to this. I think I covered quite 
a lot of it, but there is just so much more. So it was it was really meticulously detailed, and it's it is a fascinating case. At the end of it, I don't know what do you reckon. Who do you think did it? I haven't got a clue. I don't really think it was Wallace. And a lot of the books sort of focus on him as a suspect. At the same time, who else you can pin it on if you don't think it's Wallace? I think it's quite interesting for it to be Wallace. Well, that's quite macabre to say that, but, you know, it's fascinating that someone could plan a murder to such a degree. Then it makes it quite interesting if it's Wallace, I suppose. And I think a lot of people find that quite attractive is not the right word. I suppose unique and interesting that, that, that there could be someone that would have planned or have, you know, the mind to have planned a crime like that to such a detail. So I think that helps the people that subscribe to that theory that, you know, Wallace is this kind of criminal mastermind. But I don't think he was. I think, I, you know, I think he was... I think he was quite genuine in his diaries most of the time. And I don't think he had any reason to do it. At the same time, the, the evidence seems to stack up pretty heavily against Parry. And there's an awful lot, again, that you can read about Parry if you sort of read those other books. Possibly my money's kind of perhaps on Parry. I think he's very suspicious. But again, it's all just circumstantial, isn't it? It's like the guy Luscarn said, there's, there's evidence either way. And at the time, even... You know, the, the, the defence and the judges said, that, you know, there was evidence either way. There's as much to prove innocence as they are guilty for both parties, well, for all parties, pretty much. So, yeah, tri- tricky one. The court transcripts themselves, are, despite being a primary source, and, and obviously that's good, the information is fascinating and it does flesh it out. But, yeah, it just leaves you with all this kind of circumstantial evidence at the end of it. and. I think depending on what way you're inclined to believe, then it's going to shape what you sort of make of those documents, I guess. But they're, they're, they're certainly interesting. I, mean, I, I, quite, I find court transcripts quite interesting anyway. But yeah, say we came back to Earth with this episode and I think I'll probably save most of my chat say, as we're overrunning for the live stream. So sort of to talk a little bit about that, if you weren't aware, we did a live stream a couple of weeks ago now or last week. It's streamed on YouTube and it was really fun. Uh, basically, it was we did a sort of retrospective. We talked about the last couple of episodes and you can jump on the stream with me and other members of the community um, or you can participate on YouTube in the live text chat to sort of have a chat with us. And it's really good fun. I found it really, really fun. There were, like I say, some sort of technical teething difficulties that I did try and iron out before the case, but it, it it didn't work out in practice, but I've sorted them out now. So the next one should be smooth. Yeah, it would be really great if you can join us. The next one's on the 31st of August um, and I'll be tweeting and Facebooking and all that details closer to that. Uh, if you want to jump on the stream, spaces are limited. I'd say about five other people, I think it is. Uh, so they fall to our patrons first and then they open up to the members of the Dark Histories Discord. So yeah, jump on the Discord in the very least. And yeah, you'll find a lot of details about that. Rather than sort of a live stream of the podcast, it's more a live stream where we can all just like have a good chat with each other, really. Very community-based. So yeah, jump on there. It's really good fun. Hit up the Discord, which is on juice.com. Yeah, and speak of the Discord, there's a second way of interacting in our community. And it's a new idea that's sort of community-driven. It's run by 
a member of the community and new Discord moderator, Mish. The general idea of it is that it's sort of going to be in the vein of a book club, but without books, and taking place over a text chat room. Uh, but basically, Mish is going to post the topic up a day before so that everyone can sort of get an idea for what we're going to be talking about and have a theme chat about something on the Discord. So, you know, that, that that's quite, it should be quite a fun, interesting kind of way of getting the community together. The first one's going to be scheduled for the 17th, which is just like a few days. So, yeah, drop in our Discord and join in. And, uh, yeah, I'll just give a big thank you to the community who have helped to make it such a nice welcoming place, really, and are coming up with these ideas to sort of have sort of a nice community. And, and it's been a really nice welcoming place. And also a big thanks to Anne and Mish, who are giving their time to help moderate it and make sure that there's no silly nonsense from bots and trolls and stuff and keeping it a nice place to be basically so yeah if you'd like to join in on that both the live stream and the kind of theme discussion probably the best way to do that is to head over to darkhistories.com and you'll find all the details of the discord there how to sign up where to download it from if you want to download the app yeah all the other details for our social media is on there too And if you'd like to support the show, we're on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash darkhistories. And for your support, you get early access to episodes and all the episodes are ad-free as well as you get access to my research notes, stickers, postcard, discounts on merch, call to join in on the live stream, stuff like that. And yeah, again, all the details are over on the Patreon. Uh, Our support tiers are $1, 3 and $5 a month. So basically, for the price of buying me a coffee every month, you get some nice things and you can support the show. That really allows it to go on without being financially problematic for me because I'm just a single person making the whole show. So, you know, it's it's very much appreciated from my part. Anyway, uh, details of that can be found at patreon.com forward slash darkhistories or if you stop in to darkhistories.com, you can find all the links for everything as well as all the show notes and all that stuff. Aside from that, I think I'm probably going to call this one quite quickly, like I say, because we're already overrunning, I think. It's a bit of a shame because this is a part of the show where I can relax and take it easy and enjoy it. I don't, you know, I don't have to research or write anything, but I think I've already taken enough of your time today. So I'll save a lot of this chat stuff that I've got, a lot of sort of stuff that's on my mind about this case for the next live stream because... Otherwise, you'll be here for days. So yeah, thanks for listening. I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Sleep tight.